Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Imagine you were actually content. <laughs> and the whole economy fell apart. Mm. <laughs> Contentment is bad for business. Mm. Mm. If you do this long enough, you actually start to feel okay. <laughs> so, um, well, you know... Maybe it was a little rough uh, going through it this fast, but you, you get a feeling a little bit for how easy it is actually to memorize this text. Um, Sanskrit is quite phonetic, and uh, the sutra form, sutra is where we get the English word suture, which means to uh, stitch something together in a very refined way. So they chop the sentence, put it together in a way that's really, really tight. And uh, there are different kinds of philosophical texts. Um, there are uh, gitas, which are songs. There are karikas, which are philosophical texts like we find mostly in the West. There are uh, puranas, which are folk tales. And sutra is like the most refined form, um, where you take sentences and you refine them and you refine them until you just have the essence of the sentence there. And um, that's why you need so many commentaries to unpack uh, the sentence. Um, my interest in, in the Yoga Sutra really came uh, just because I, I'm a meditator. And uh, I thought of the Yoga Sutra as a kind of textbook for how to practice. And um, the first translation I ever got was by Christopher Isherwood. And it was called How to Know God. And uh, I was a little bit puzzled in the text because as I continued to read it, I saw that there were all these opposites in the text, like the soul and God that were somehow connected and the mind and God. And um, after a while, I started to doubt whether the translation was any good because it actually just seemed like it, there was nothing different about the Yoga Sutra than anything I ever read in any Western spiritual tradition. Spirit and matter were at odds with each other. Your mind is the cause of suffering. The ego is something to get rid of. And it all just seemed kind of...
kind of the same as everything else. And so I started working, trying to learn some Sanskrit and trying to read the Yoga Sutra without any commentaries, just to go line by line and try and read the text. And simultaneously, uh, my friend Chip Hartranft, whose translation we're reading right now, was a meditator and was translating this text in the same way. Um, he's a finer translator than I could ever be. But just going word by word and then starting to see that a lot of these words like God and soul and enlightenment are not actually even in the text. The traditional words that so many commentators use like Brahman and Atman and Moksha are not even there. And actually when you still read current translations and commentaries, they superimpose all of these old terms from other Indian philosophical traditions through the back door into the text, which I think really de-radicalizes what's so fascinating about Patanjali. I think by getting rid of the word moksha, by getting rid of this idea of enlightenment, by pointing towards a freedom that's possible here and now, Patanjali offers a textbook that allows us to practice without committing to a particular belief system, which I think is why his text might be relevant for us in the post-post-postmodern world that we live in, where maybe we have a distrust of grand overarching theories that explain how things are. Because I don't know really nowadays if we need any more uh, big stories about how the world came to be or what's going to happen to you when you die. We need to know how to live with each other and the earth in a way that allows us to let go of some of the stories that we have that maybe are not so helpful anymore. And so I hope that even just looking at the first few lines, this might help you a little bit or give you a taste for how you could yourself read this text or maybe just turn you off completely and send you back to the tradition you were born into. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in a very uh, traditional Jewish family in some ways. And so I used to go to synagogue every weekend. And uh, I remember once in a while reading the Hebrew, which I knew fluently, um, while everybody around me who seemed really old was <coughs> praying. And I remember I would just study their faces while I was distracted and think, oh, when I'm that age, am I going to do that? You know, am I going to be here doing this? And then once in a while, my, my eyes would drift over to the English side. And I would actually start reading the translation of what we were chanting. And I would be a bit shocked. And I would look around the room and wonder, are people really trembling with fear in the face of the Lord? Does anybody believe that? I don't see anybody trembling. And I would start to look around wondering, does anybody believe anything they're doing? You know? And um, then I became obsessed with, while people were chanting, I would just read the English and be really worked up, thinking, do people even know what they're chanting? What are we doing here? And, and how do we know any of this? It's a little bit like, I remember, uh, enjoying Freud's rhetoric when I first started reading the introductory le lectures on psychoanalysis. 
because he had all these people saying to him, you know, how do you know that there is an unconscious? And his response would always be, you know, if you can't see it, then, then you're unconscious. And it was this convenient way mm-hmm. of saying, well, if you don't get it, you're just unconscious, and that proves the unconscious. It actually doesn't make much sense, really. Um, and so when I was a kid, I was deeply disturbed. Uh, and I had this wonderful feeling about religion, and I felt like a religious person. And maybe in some ways I, I still do. But I actually think that sometimes we forget that humans invented religion. Religion didn't just come from a lightning bolt on the top of a mountain and get set up in tablets or something. Humans invent religion. We design religion just like we design cows. If you ever look at what an original cow looks like, it doesn't look anything like the milk cows that you find just outside the city here. Uh, We created cows. Cats are like this, too. If you look at kind of the predecessor of your house cat, it doesn't look like the cat that you have at home. And I think sometimes we forget that we design religion. We design these systems. They're human endeavors. And as they move between cultures, they get redesigned. Buddhism in Japan doesn't look like Buddhism in Tibet. And maybe that's why Buddhism is alive, because it can be adapted by a culture and changed by the culture, and somehow it's still Buddhism. And likewise with yoga. Yoga comes into a culture, and we redesign it. And this is okay. And not to be scared of wrestling with these ideas and these teachings, to see what works and what doesn't work. And that's okay. And that makes your tradition alive. So as we go through this, I don't want you to be scared about asking questions or wondering in yourself, is this true for me? Does this relate to my experience? Okay? That's the little caveat before we we look. So uh, I don't want to be like the person at the front of the room telling you what this says, and you just swallowing it. Oh, okay. That must be what this this is about. Mm-hmm. Yep, there's one here. So the first word is atta, which basically means the present moment, whatever that is. I don't even know what that is. I mean, as soon as you say the present moment, it's gone. You can't actually find the present moment. And when you're in the present moment, you don't even know you're in the present moment because you're not outside it. You only think about the present moment when you're not in the present moment. And, and you actually can't know what a moment is. In Sanskrit, it's called a kshana, which is just that. And uh, present moments come and go. I once asked uh, Kempo Tsaltrim Gyatso, how long should I practice meditation for? And he said, oh, just blink your eyes. And I heard, I heard kind of the same thing as Batabi Joyce saying, meditate on tongue. What's he talking? But this time I said, I, I don't understand. What do you mean, blink your eyes? And he said, just blink your eyes and let go. And I spent years actually thinking about this practice. And we could all even try it right now. Is if you blink your eyes, 
And to really notice how when you blink your eyes, try, that moment is done. It's, it's over. Oh, and you blink again. And then, oh, and you blink again. And you can't actually go back and change anything once you blink your eyes. And breathing is like this, isn't it? When you exhale, Patabi Joyce calls the exhale little bit dying. Because when you exhale, that moment is it's gone. You, you, can't, uh, you can't go back. Maybe sometimes we think we can go back. What does it mean to let something go and not replace it with anything? Most of us don't do that, right? We let something go and we find something else to replace it with. Or we say, oh, I've let such and such go, but then you're still dreaming about it. You haven't really let anything go. You've told yourself you've let something go, but it's right there. So atta literally means this experience, but it's also not even a thing. Maybe nowadays we hear so much, like if you put the present moment in the title of a book these days, it's a bestseller, mindfulness or the present moment. Um, But actually, the present moment doesn't exist. And all suffering is actually just the gap between what's going on and time. Actually, to see that when you're not in time um, and you're outside of time, then uh, they're suffering. And so now is the teaching of yoga. Most translations say, now we are going to study yoga. But that's not really what Patanjali is saying here. It's not that now we are going to study something. It's that now is yoga. Do you see the difference? Like in Western philosophy, Whenever Heidegger is going to say something, he's going to say, you know, now we are going to study being and time. But that's not really what Patanjali is doing here. It's a sutra, so he doesn't make a large gesture of introduction. The first teaching is actually a definition of yoga, that yoga is now. And if we think of yoga as intimacy, that the interconnected nature of life is now. And you can only experience it now. You can't experience your life outside of now. Life only happens in present moments. It doesn't happen another way. You, you can't go back and relive something. Maybe there are ways you can do that in your imagination, but you can't really have the same experience twice. You can't even hear a sound the same way. Twice. The context is always shifting. When your old lovers find you on Facebook <laughs> and you have a fantasy that maybe you could go back, you just remember this. Stick with Twitter instead, it's a little more. How many characters do you get? 140? Yeah. I actually don't even know what Twitter is. 
And then the second sentence, he has to sort of define what, what yoga actually is with a little more depth. And so he or she says, yoga chitta vritti nirodha. Rodha is where we get the English word radical or radish, which means to get to the root of something, to really get down into the roots of something, to get under the roots of something. And nirodha means to really see the roots of something, to kind of uncover. And vritti, there are a lot of yoga poses with vritti in them. What is a vritti? When a pose has the word vritti, it's a what pose? A revolved pose. So vritti means revolution. And for now, let's translate chitta as your imagination. That, that kind of imaginative consciousness. So chitta vritti, twin together, means the revolutions of your imagination, the constant elaborations of your mind. And so he's saying here that yoga is the nirodaha of the chitta vrittis. And most people translate this as yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. And this doesn't make sense. Why would you want to stop the fluctuations of your mind? I mean, certainly, as a temporary thing, that would be wonderful. But how can stopping your mind be a helpful, ethical way of participating in the world? Really. Certainly, it's wonderful when you have the experience of having no thoughts. And some of you who have a meditation or art practice know what it's like to not have any thoughts. It's amazing sometimes to me how many adults... We always say, like, how many kids don't ever see the stars who live in big cities? And often I think, how many adults have never had the experience of having no thought? Right? It's an amazing thing, really. And um, imagine if kids after high school, instead of going to university to learn how to think, they have to spend three years meditating to learn first how to be quiet and how to sit still. It'd be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so, yoga, an interesting thing in Sanskrit here, by the way, I don't want to get too technical, but when you have a word at the beginning of a sentence that has the same ending as a word at the end of a sentence in a sutra form, they're synonymous, which is really cool, which means that yoga is nirodaha. Nirodaha of what? Of the chittavrittis. So it's not that yoga is to end or to cease the mind. If that was the goal of yoga, you could just take Thorazine or something and put your mind to rest. Um, but rather, yoga is the cessation of our misidentification with the fluctuations of the mind. What, what ceases is not the mind, but the way we cling. It's about our reactivity 
and our relationship with mind, not the actual mind. Does that make sense? In yoga circles, when you, or in meditation circles especially, when you treat thinking as a bad thing, there's a lot of tension in your practice because you're not open. You're just trying to get rid of thinking. And uh, then you make thinking an enemy. And it's not so good. So the problem is our clinging and our misidentification with our thoughts, not the thoughts themselves. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. So that is the reinterpretation of chitta vritti, but it is the sensation of the revolving thoughts. Like where does the cessation come from? From Naroda. Yeah. So if you think of Nirodaha more etymologically, mm-hmm. as getting to the bottom of something, we get to the bottom of something just by seeing it, just by seeing what's actually there, right? Like, the reason why people don't like radical people around is because they're pointing out the underground of something, right? They're kind of pointing out the roots of something. And it makes us uncomfortable, you know? We'd rather keep them at, I don't know, in private school or something. So, yoga chitta vritti nirodha is, is seeing the chitta vrittis as chitta vrittis. Yeah. yeah As opposed to trying to get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. Getting rid, trying to get rid of the chitta vritti is a chitta vritti. Yeah. Ta-da! So actually in uh, 17th century in Europe, magicians borrowed lots of Sanskrit words in their performances to make them a little more exotic. <laughs> And this is one of them. And so tada, that's exactly what it, it means, therefore, but it actually means tada. So potentially is saying here, when, when the patterning of consciousness is just seen as, as patternings of consciousness, tada. Do you see that? Tada. Um, then. Okay, this is not the best translation here, but then sva rupa self, sva rupa form, um, can avastanam, can just abide in itself. So let me explain that to you. When you can just see the patternings of consciousness come and go, just like sounds come and go, then you can just be yourself. Not the self you think is yourself, but what's left when all of that misidentification is relinquished, then you're nobody. And in that nothing, you're totally yourself. And what's so radical about this is he doesn't say anything here about enlightenment. He doesn't say that when you see through the chitta vrittis, you get enlightened. He says, when you see through the chitta vrittis, 
then you abide in your nature. The word Atman is not here. He doesn't say anything about the soul. The word Brahman is not here. You see? All he or she seems <coughs> to be saying here is that when the chitta vrittis are settled and there is not such clinging to them, then you are you. Ah. You don't have to be anybody anymore. You don't have to get anywhere. Maybe the whole problem with our spiritual paradigm is that we're trying to get somewhere. Right? Doesn't every tradition do this that you know of? Go into the Tibetan tradition and they, they take certain stages of meditation and they ratchet them up so high and they make them the goal of practice. Go into the Theravada tradition and the jhanas become the goal of practice. And go into the, uh, some of the yoga traditions and samadhi becomes the goal of yoga. <coughs> but Patanjali never says that. What we want to do is we want to take something special and over time ratchet it up so high that we're trying to get some, something. But, but that's not offered here. The best you can get is to be free to abide in your nature. I love that. How much time we spend judging ourselves, creating all these negative images of ourselves, and how unfree that makes us. We, we, don't, we can't see ourselves because we're only seeing an image. It's a, it's a representation, literally a representation of the self to the mm. self. It doesn't make any sense. And if Patanjali said, then you connect with your soul, he would make a huge linguistic error. Because if I say that I have a relationship with my soul, then there has to be a me in relationship to something inside me. And that sets up the whole split again. He's not saying there's anything inside you, and he's not saying there's anything beyond you, because then it makes a you that's in a relationship with that. And although that might sound like semantics, language really influences how we perceive things. Right? I mean, isn't this what feminist theory has been trying to bang over our heads in the English language, that our language really structures the way we see each other? and even perceive ourselves. And this is so true here. Patanjali is not creating a dualistic category here by saying that you connect with your soul. And yet, if you read almost any translation, in this sentence it says, then you abide in God, or then you connect with the deeper self. But if there's a deeper self, then there has to be a not deep self. And then you've got the problem again. There was a hand up here somewhere. Yeah. Um, when I look at this, and I, I, I really love this interpretation, and I think, for me, yeah. it's your definition of now. Uh huh. Because yeah. starting off with that definition of now, yeah. for me, I'm thinking now, and then ta-da, uh -huh. back to now. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So it's almost like it's all about. 
Yeah. With that definition. Yeah. 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 It's great. Yeah. It could just be, that could be, for me right now, um, the only part of this Yoga Sutra that I need to study yeah. for the next couple of years. Okay. Is... Well, if you treat this as a textbook, mm -hmm. he never really gets too far away from that. Yeah. And he yeah. starts offering techniques mm -hmm. of how to actually do this. Yeah. Because I've read many different translations as well, and how they juxtapose the different things. And, yeah. And it's just, now it's, it's yeah. 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 <laughs> my, my son is six years old, and... Uh, I, I just took a really lovely trip with him to Montreal. And uh, so I noticed quite a few times in the trip where I just check in with him to see how's the trip going. But I actually never really say, how's the trip going? I say things like, isn't this fun? Which kind of structures how he can respond. <laughs> right? Um, I mean, it's like saying, doesn't this suck? It's not really asking a question. It's telling someone how you feel with a question mark at the end. Like someone last night said, chakras? <laughs> I really liked that. <laughs> um, and so he'll say, oh yeah, I like this or I like that. But then a few minutes later, he's on to something else. And he likes that or doesn't like that. And as the day goes on, especially the last day, we're heading towards the airport. And we're in the taxi and I looked at him and I said, wasn't that a great trip? And he, all he could talk about was this little toy he had and uh, how it wasn't really working properly and he was trying to get it working. And he didn't reflect on whether this was a good trip or a bad trip or try to like put a kind of net around the three days because he's just totally into whatever he's doing in that moment. And in that moment, this thing was going on, and that's what he's into. And then two minutes later, he's into the baggage cart, and a minute later, he's into what a passport is. And, and he doesn't sort of go outside it and, and determine whether the trip was good or not good. It, it, because that's all just stuff we do. <laughs> right? And... Um, how can we really enter our life? There's a story about this uh, in the Chinese tradition about a woman who um, is studying in a monastery and becomes increasingly frustrated. She's doing all the right practices and the right chanting and wearing the robes and following along and eventually leaves because she feels that the form of the practice is not really helping her wake up. Has anyone ever felt this way? Have you ever been really committed to a system and you know all the parts of the system? Maybe this is actually one of the saddest things about a lot of spiritual practices is when people become so absorbed in the system that they know all the gossip in the system and the nuts and bolts, but they forget what the whole thing's pointing at. And they're kind of blinded by the technique. This is what happens to her, and she recognizes it and leaves. And then nine years later, she comes back. And um, 
she wants to go find the head abbess. And she does. Someone tells her that the abbess is walking in the field behind the monastery. And this is China. So you can imagine these like rice fields maybe with dikes running through them. And says, um, excuse me, I'm back again. And I just need to ask you a question. This is you. And the teacher says, okay, what do you have to ask? And she says, how do I really enter? Do you ever have this? You know a lot about yoga, and then maybe there's this reoccurring, how do I really enter? Someone asked last night, how many kinds of yoga are there? And I avoided the question. How do you really enter has nothing to do with how many kinds of yoga there are. Um, the teacher says, you mean to enter the way, to enter the path, to enter your life? And she says, how do I really enter my life? And the teacher says, do you hear the sound of the water running through the drainage ditch? And she Oh, yeah, uh uh-huh. Do you hear the sound of the cars? And then she says, yeah, uh uh-huh. I hear the sound of the water in the dike. And then the teacher says, enter there. And I could say the same thing to you. Do you hear the sound of the cars? Enter here. The quality of the light to enter here. In the yoga practice, maybe some pleasurable sensations arise, and maybe sometimes some sensations arise that are not what you expect. And there's a lot of feeling. And that's where you enter. Waking up has nothing to do with feeling good. If you think freedom is about feeling good, you're going to miss so much of your life. Freedom is not dependent on a particular feeling. Otherwise, if you were in deep pain, you wouldn't be able to be free. (coughs) So enter here. Can you do that, really? If your life can only happen moment to moment to moment, then that's the only way you can enter your life, is right now. And the problem when our practice is so much about form is that we can forget that that this is it. There is not a place you get to go. And even if there was a place to get to go, it can only happen now. I'm wondering about um, maybe a definition of samadhi. I've always kind of liked that some people have said, you know, this could be a goal in yoga, because I've always pictured it to be spiritual absorption, and, um, and to me that means being now, being here and now. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering what, how you would define samadhi. Well, actually this chapter is called samadhi. Mm-hmm. Samadhi pada. Pada is a foot. It's the foot of samadhi. A pada also means chapter. 
And uh, maybe this is where a footnote comes from. I don't know. Um, Adi is one. And sum is where we get the English word sum, which is uh, actually through Latin, the word sum actually becomes the word com, like in community, which actually means like the sum of something. Um, so sum and com actually uh, etymologically are related uh, to come together um, as one. So samadhi actually means integration. And it's the integration of subject and object. So whenever we're telling a story, we're actually creating an object. And you can't have an object without a subject, right? You all know this. Have you ever watched a sunset? No? <laughs> Actually, I can tell you a story about this once. Um, I went to Buffalo once. I had this obsession with Mark Rothko. And I'd never seen any of his paintings. Do you know Mark Rothko? He has these huge paintings. They're just enormous. And they're usually two squares of color. Sometimes the colors complement each other. Sometimes it's just red and red. And the titles of the paintings are red. Number 43 or whatever. And I went to this, this uh, contemporary art museum in Buffalo, New York. And there was this one room where there was this hallway. It was long and white. And there were benches on either side. And then at the end of the room, there was just red. And I remember walking into the room and just. And it was just one of those moments where a piece of art suspends everything you know. Right? It kind of reorders or actually unorders. And, and in that moment, there was no painting. There was no Michael. There was just this experience. And then I had the thought, whoa. And then I had the thought, whoa. And then I had the thought, that's so amazing. And as soon as I felt myself saying, that's so amazing, I was out of it. And then there was a painting on the wall. And then these women came up behind me, a whole group of them, with a lot of jewelry. <laughs> and one woman turned to the other and said, there's a bigger one of those in Baltimore. <laughs> and then they went to the next room. <laughs> and it's like this when you see a sunset. You see a sunset, and you just go, The root of the palate releases, the roof of the mouth, central axis is open. And then you go, oh, that's, that's a good sunset. And then your friend says, it's not as good as sunsets in Ontario. You should see the sunset in Georgian Bay. And you're like, <laughs> and then you have a long distance relationship. So then you're like, you should really move here. And then she's like, no way. I'm not moving to Ontario. Don't start this again. Say, so, but come on. I mean, like, I keep traveling back and forth. And, like, you know, we have this thing. She's like, well, it's really nice like this. We have our space. And you're like, well, you know, I want to be together. And you have this really intense conversation. And the next thing you know, the sun set. And you both totally missed it. 
because in the moment of sunsetting, there's no sunsetting. There's just the aesthetic experience. Right? And then as soon as you decide about it, there's a subject and an object. Okay? So samadhi is the fact that underneath the way we split subject and object, there's an inherent integration below that split. And there are practices you can do to really pay attention to that. And in deep meditation and concentration practices especially, you forget about yourself. And this is called samadhi. And in the Yoga Sutra, there are eight different levels of samadhi, which I won't get into now. Um, But uh, it's not the goal of practice because although it's non-dualistic, although the subject and the object dissolve, and although we all want to think that that is a way we should always live, it's only half of how you live. We also live in the dualistic realm. And it's wrong to idealize either and get caught in either. And the experienced meditator loves the dualistic realm and isn't trying to make it non-dual. That non-duality is, is, a, is a real love for duality. You see? Form is just form. And it's not such a big deal anymore. It's just form. Otherwise, from the dualistic side, we think, oh, non-duality, like, I have to be in this place all the time. (laughs) One of the instructions I give people at the end of retreats is to forget about the retreat and to not try and make your life like a retreat and actually just to walk away from the retreat. We have something we do uh, as a rule in Center of Gravity called doorknob practice, which is when you come home from a retreat, you stand at the door. Maybe you have a family on the other side or a friend or whatever, or your life as it was before retreat. And you put your hand on the doorknob and you meditate on what's happening on the other side of the door. And because you have the resources now of non-reactivity that what's happening on the other side of the door may not have, you let go of whatever way you think things should go and you just walk in the door. So that you don't try and hold on to these experiences. They're fleeting. Yeah? So I think it would be a mistake to think that that level of subject and object collapsing into each other as a sustained way of living is the goal of the practice. I don't think that that's that's real. It's not real. That it's a little bit like if you carried a long piece, let's say a two by four, out in front of you. You can only see one side of it. You can't see the other side of it. Right? When I sit down on this block, I can't see it. 
So there's always a shadow. And the shadow of non-duality is duality. The shadow of duality is non-duality. But when you see both, there's no problem anymore. You don't need to always be in non-duality. You can drop it so that when you go out on the street, you're not one with a fire truck. (coughs) You want to be a subject, and you want that to be an object. Does this make sense? Have we covered anything that's confusing, or is this, is this resonating with your experience? I hope so. I hope it's also debunking maybe some ideas you have about this practice. Yeah? I get the concept. I think for me, I find the non-duality in society way more distracting. And I think that's where I get really... That's where I'm challenged, is by being able to separate the two and, like, find that balance and to not get overly distracted and not get, like, you know, maybe drained by certain heavy energies in society, whatever that yeah. might be. Yeah. 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 And, I, like, I don't know, would your recommendation be practice? Like, I guess that's why we're here. We're trying to find tools for how to maintain that balance. Yeah. But This is a fairly alert way of being in the world, but it's also a relaxed way of being in the world. One of the things that I see happening a lot these days is people doing these 10-day meditation retreats um, and coming back kind of a mess. Um, Because what tends to happen is that when you get really quiet, the world becomes really vivid. I remember one time halfway through a, uh, one of these 10-day retreats, the teacher got us to do this exercise where you take your finger and you really slowly bend it. And it was the coolest thing ever. It's like you're, you're bending, you're like, whoa, too fast, too fast. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> And you just get so into the detail of the finger. and It's so vivid. You know, you start to hear things as if you've been deaf. Or you see things as if you, like some filters come off your eyes. Have you had this experience? You can get this camping, too. And, um, and I remember this. And then I remember walking out in Boston after the workshop. And somebody was throwing out a plant. And there was this green on the sidewalk, and I just started crying. I had never seen such a green before. I was standing on the sidewalk crying, looking at this green. And like, this is not good. (laughs) And so people come out of retreats sometimes, and they come back, and they see pollution. Or they see people rushing around, and they get totally overwhelmed. And it kind of wipes them out. Because... As you get deeper into your practice, you also have to have relaxation. And I think this is sometimes under-articulated in the yoga and and the Buddhist world, too. That when vividness happens, you also need chill. So that when you come back into the world, the intensity of what you see isn't so overwhelming. 
because it's met with a sense, oh, it's kind of like, yes, this is how it is. And it's vivid, and you're relaxed about it. And that's so crucial. Because otherwise, you become so sensitive that you can't participate. And then you become really depressed. And uh, there's so much suffering. Any of you who do helping work, I know a lot of what some of you do. I mean, let's say you're a doctor, you know, and, and you start working more to accept new patients. And then you start to realize, like, the lineup is never going to shorten, really. I was talking to, to Sarah earlier about a, someone I know named Bernie Glassman in New York City, and his, his goal is to end homelessness in New York City. You can't end homelessness in New York City, and he knows that. And that's what he's committed to, is to end homelessness in New York City. And um, he's so relaxed. If he wasn't relaxed, he'd be total mess. Right? We all know this. Patanjali is saying here, when you just see these patterns, it's okay. This is who you are. And you can accept it. And you can roll up your sleeves and go to work on what's right in front of you without being totally flattened. I said last night, or Robert Bringhurst said, we're giants. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around and I'm totally overwhelmed at what we do to each other. Never mind to the earth. I find sometimes when I go to Alberta and I teach, I prepare a talk to talk about what's happening with the tar sands or other things going on there. And then I find when I actually get there, I can't even talk about it. I, I become so overwhelmed. And so I don't talk about what I plan to talk about because it's, it's so devastating to me. You know? And how do we live in this world and really accept the fact we're doing this. Or even like internally, like how many of us treat ourselves really badly? You know? Where there's like this constant judgment maybe about ourselves, where you really, you don't talk nicely to yourself. And maybe there are parts of yourself that you really don't allow to be alive. Maybe other people would be too alarmed if you really were yourself. But Patanjali is saying here that actually the whole path of practice is to let that occur. Like to really, to be yourself. I don't know, maybe in a way being yourself is kind of the most terrifying and the most freeing thing that can happen. To actually be intimate with yourself. That whole cast of characters that is who you are, that's unpin-downable. I think maybe in the postmodern literature, we can talk easily about how we're socially and relationally constructed, blah, blah, blah. But actually, can you live that? Can you live a self as just a sequence of contingent viewpoints? 
with no basis. And for Patanjali, that's freedom. That there is nothing wrong with you. Shinru Suzuki says it beautifully. He says, you are totally complete, exactly as you are. Except there's room for a little improvement. (laughs) (laughs) Itaratra, otherwise, awareness takes itself to be the chitavritis. This is so complicated. This is actually... This sentence is such a different way of understanding our psychology than how we think about consciousness in the West. This is a very profound sentence. What he's saying here is that awareness... is awareing all the time and that the chitavrittis are not awareness that consciousness is actually not awareness he's setting up a really neat vocabulary here saying consciousness and awareness are not the same thing can I give you an example Uh, it's uh, 2 o'clock in the morning and you're walking to your fridge for your ninth dinner or your 40th cookie. Has anyone ever done this before? Yeah. You know? They left you last week, and now you're eating your sadness at 3 in the morning. And as you're walking to the fridge, you're totally conscious of what you're doing. You're saying, oh, I feel like shit, you know. I'm I'm just going to eat again, and and I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't do this. Why do I do this? I know it's not going to feel good. I'm already bloated. But, like, I just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then when you're in there, you see other things. You see cheese. And I'm going to have another cheese sandwich, you know, melted. And you know you're doing it. So to say that that's unconscious is not exactly true because you're conscious. People who have long-standing addictions, all of you, with your addictions, you know this, right? It's like, as you're going for the needle or whatever, you know what you're doing. That is chitta. That's consciousness, right? And if you think that to be conscious of consciousness is going to help you, you're wrong. Because actually, (laughs) to just keep thinking about what you're doing doesn't actually help, does it? You know this. Right? You, you keep talking to yourself, and it's is talking about chittavrittis. And Patanjali says, um, awareness seems to be able to just notice without taking the shape of what it's noticing. So there's a part of us that can notice us walking to the fridge and just notice. And in the noticing, the chitavrittis become shy and they start to stop. 
actually. So the noticing has no language in it. And yet, awareness is not a thing. I think of it as a natural resource, actually. Just like we think of water as a natural resource, awareness is a natural resource. It's always there. And it's not a thing. You can't point to it. It's not inside you. It's not outside of you. It has no location. And it's not in time. And... When you're aware of something from a place of stillness, then whatever it is you're caught up in just falls apart. It's quite powerful, actually. You know this listening to sound, right? You keep listening to sound, you're talking to yourself about it, and then there's a way you can notice noticing sound, and reactivity starts to settle. And yet, awareness is not a thing. It's not hidden inside you somewhere. It's not in the sky. It, 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 the mind wants to go, okay, then awareness is what's really behind everything. And potentially saying, nope. Awareness also, it doesn't exist. And yet it exists. It's not a thing. Bigger things like I'm really angry with a child. Yeah. I look at it and I see it, and I'm, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't go away like I really want it to. Yeah. I'm still really angry. Yeah. How do you see that? You know, at the end of the day, maybe you're reflecting on your day and you think about something really unkind you said to a kid. Maybe they were putting on their snowsuit, and after three hours, you lost your temper and said, just put on your pockets. You know? Or you just put it on for them with really strong physical movements. And then at the end of the day, you feel kind of badly, you know? It's like, God. Like, they're so small. Um, how can you just notice that? Yeah, that that's life also, you know? that uh, sometimes we're going to really operate from kindness and sometimes we're not. And to actually really see that without shame and also without judging ourselves. It's like if you see that you judge yourself a lot and then you judge yourself about it. I am such an idiot, you know? And it's like, God, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> Then that's not awareness. You see? It's a chittavritti on a chittavritti. Yeah. In Buddhist psychology, this is called papancha, which means conceptual proliferation. When a concept proliferates another concept on another concept, and it's endless, solipsistic. Papancha. It's a great word. Papancha. Um, but awareness is when you just. See clinging, and you just see it. It's really honest. 
If we could all be so honest, you know. Satya. Svadhyaya. Self-study. Really be honest. That at the, at the source of our relationships, there is both um, the desire to serve others and wanting to kill them. <laughs> and I think if we don't really see that we have the desire for peace and aggression, <coughs> then we end up with, you know, like in, in the United States, they have more people incarcerated than any country in the world. The freest country has more people in prison than any country. And how many people actually go visit any of those people in prison? Not, you know, you don't see, they're, they're away somewhere, right? But, but in a way, freedom then gets, becomes dependent on people not being free, right? And people not being free is dependent on other people being inside, outside. This is not a way of really seeing the world. And, um, you know, even when you read newspapers and you hear about crimes being committed, it only takes a little imagination to contemplate how if you were in those conditions and you had the history of that person and the family of that person and the genetics of that person, it's not such a stretch that you could have done the same thing in the same conditions. And wow, to really feel that's kind of disturbing. And um, so this is what's meant by awareness, to really radically see how things are. Uh, Means that you can't ever have a clean moral conscience. There was a hand up. Yeah. Is it the aha moment when you are in an <clears throat> argument with your family member or your partner or your child yeah. uh, and you find yourself in the same place all the time? How yeah. do we get to the same yeah. place in the argument, even though it's about a different topic? Yeah. But if it's catching yourself before that, yeah. finding that rea- internal reaction that one yeah. does, that aha moment, say, yeah. ah, instead of me reacting this way, yeah. shifted and reacted opposite yeah. to try to find that. So is that the awareness or is that what is unconscious being brought to consciousness? There isn't a model here of conscious unconscious. Yeah. It's just awareness. Really see. Really, really see. In Toronto in the spring we're doing something called a street retreat which is uh, going out into the street and just looking and eating and sleeping and not trying to be homeless or something. Just, just to go practice by finding food somehow, finding places to sleep somehow. For how long do you do that? Three days. Not so long. We should be doing it for a week, but um, and uh, we're not role-playing or something. And uh, we do this because when I walk around in my neighborhood, I, I notice there's things I like seeing, and there's lots of stuff I don't like looking at. And when you walk around all day long 
in your neighborhood, you start noticing things. And you start really waking up to yoga, the way things are interdependent. You know? And uh, so I mention this because there are ways that we see what we want to see. And that's not freedom. Freedom is related to really accepting the way things are. And I think a lot of us don't really want to see how things are. And this teacher in China says to her student, enter here. If you want to enter your life, enter right now. Maybe you have things in your life that are unresolved. Maybe you have conflicts. That's where you enter. You don't have to enter unresolved stuff to resolve it. That's not really entering. You see this a lot in people's practice, that they go into their meditation and their yoga practice to work stuff out, to analyze. But that's not the place for that. What's it like to really open to something unresolved? And I think actually maybe sometimes when you go into it trying to resolve it, you actually don't really open to it. None of us like feeling the feeling of unresolution. Yeah. So this is the heart of what we're, we're doing. Yeah. I have a question, just in terms of, you talk a lot about, um, you know, accepting that freedom comes from sort of um, seeing what's there and accepting it, but then how do, and, and maybe we talked about it at the talk yesterday, which I didn't get to again, but, um, mm-hmm. so how do you take that and then kind of meld it with the idea of seeing things that we'd like to improve in our lives or yeah. in society? Seeing things as they are is not enough. Then karma kicks in. To see that things are the way they are because of actions. And that our actions matter. Because everything we do has a consequence. And so, when we really open and accept to how things are, Out of that acceptance comes action, loving action, creative action. It's a much more creative response than our regular form of reactivity. And in a lot of spiritual communities, people think that they have to get to a certain level of practice before they should go take action. And and this is a real problem, because action and non-reaction, they work together. You see? So by taking action, we refine and see our patterns of reactivity. So the first practice is just to stop. Maybe some of us need to stop for a couple years and actually just learn how to really stop. Maybe it's scary, actually. Maybe some of you who do activist work Maybe actually it's terrifying to think about stopping because maybe it shows you how tight you are around the way you want things to turn out. It's like this in relationships, you know. 
how many times do you have a relationship you're trying to fix? You know? And how scary or terrifying it is to actually stop and really see what's going on. Because sometimes in the fixing, we deny that maybe it's not working and maybe it doesn't need to work. I mean, that's also true, isn't it? Yeah. And um, you see this a lot in couples therapy. Everyone's trying to do the therapy to be together. And this is sometimes where it goes wrong because they're not doing the therapy to actually really accept how things are. They're doing the therapy to be together. And I think there's some good in that. But the being together has to come out of really accepting how it is. So if the first step is stopping, the second step is accepting. This is how it is. And then out of that acceptance, spontaneous, creative, alive action shows up. And you can't ever know what it is beforehand. Sorry. You can't rehearse spontaneity. Every artist knows this. If you, if you go into making a film or a painting or a book, and it turns out exactly the way you want it at the beginning, what's the point? The, the best part of all the surprises. You're filming something, and a, and a bird flies in just the right way, and you could have never predicted that. So it's like it's taking responsibility. Is that the the glue between karma and like awareness and karma? It's like you recognize you need to take responsibility. Yeah, yeah. You see, because in the yoga paradigm, there's no idea that God um, takes care of things at Christmas time. Comes down your chimney and rewards you if you've been good. And I don't know what Santa Claus does if you've been bad. What does he do if you're naughty? A lump of coal? Yeah. In your stocking? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's so mean. Well, so if you don't have a god that's doing this, what you do have is karma. Meaning that you see your interconnectedness, you realize that your interconnectedness means everything you do matters because it has an effect. And then you realize you have so much responsibility. You, you really have to pay attention to what you're doing because what you're doing matters. And if you have interconnectedness without karma, then you get nihilism because everything's changing. So who cares, right? This is where Nietzsche went wrong. Because Nietzsche was obsessed with impermanence, right? He got interconnectedness. He totally got impermanence. Kierkegaard, too. But not the karma piece. Because if everything's changing, then who cares what you do? It's totally depressing. It, it actually, nothing matters anymore, right? But with karma, actually, it does matter. And even the way you see the world affects the world. This is what teenagers need to learn when they get so overwhelmed by the fact they're going to die. 
And then they start to realize, well, nothing means anything because we're all going to die. Well, they don't understand karma yet. And as I said last night, all you are is karma. Actions and effects of actions. Does, does this make sense? So you have to take responsibility. And yet, you can't decide beforehand what that responsibility is. It arises naturally in different situations. You go into a forest and you see a bird, and the bird is flopping around on the ground, and her wing is hurt, and you pick it up, poor bird, you know? Is your wing hurt? Oh, it doesn't look like your wing's hurt, but you're flopping around on the ground, poor bird. And so you take the bird home and you feed it special nuts that are organic and whatever. And you have this love for this bird. You kiss the bird and you play bird songs in your house. And then one day with a little more research, you realize that actually for that bird to learn how to fly, the mother kicked her out of the nest. And it was flopping on the ground, and you and your compassion came along, because you're so nonviolent and loving, and you just ruined the whole thing. So it's complicated, and there's no one way to live. And sometimes your actions are going to be helpful, and sometimes they're not. But you still have to do it. You have to participate. You can't ever get out of our interconnectedness. One more. There was one hand up. Yeah. I was just going to ask, like, I think, when I think of, like, in the work that I do with, when you talk about working with teenagers, you talk about working with kids, or even just in some of the students that come that are so in that place of wanting to have the most flexible hamstrings, or, like, I'm really, I'm going to be able to do full splits, I swear. You know? (laughs) And how, like, just sort of, how do you... Build at that base level, knowing that, like, I mean, on some level, people have to be in a place where they're ready for it. But how do you start to open people up to that idea that like, maybe you're okay to just be? And I mean, you can say those kinds of things. But what advice do you have on that sort of trying to like help to lay that foundation enough that when they're ready, they can maybe just stop, breathe, and think about it again? Yeah. Well, I think both are true. I think there are some people who have good hamstrings. <laughs> and really want to learn advanced poses. And they should, because they're really amazing. I think sometimes you want to take the other route of, oh, you know, it's all impermanent, so, like, don't get too excited about half lotus. Or, you know, don't get too excited about lotus and headstand. But actually, it's amazing. And it has tremendous therapeutic benefit. I mean, we practice today. Like, I hope some of you, I pushed you a little bit. And maybe we learn a few new things. And we need that a little bit. Or we don't wake up the amazing intelligence of the body. There's so many yoga practices where they're just so sleepy. And it's like it's great to relax. But after a while, it's like we also need to learn how to wake up the prana, you know. And um, we do it really elegantly with our students. And so you also see people who, in their practice, start to really cling to a goal of a certain pose or something. And they're frustrated by it. And we hold them in that place of frustration so they can feel that frustration. And we do it in a really soft way. And then over a while, they start to see over many years that this body is impermanent. And that maybe for a few years, your back bends were pretty good, and now they don't work anymore. 
And that's true also. And then it's a real mind practice. And the job of a good teacher is to really learn about your students and to get a sense of what you think would help them be alive and to work with that, as opposed to having a goal like, this is a sequence and you should know this sequence and today you do the posture like this. I don't know. There's a place for that, but I think it's not so relational. Like when I leave here, I don't want you to do the poses like I say to do them. I just want you to take some of the principles you've learned and apply them to the practice, whatever practice you have. But I don't want to start a system. Sorry. (laughs) One more minute. (coughs) Very convenient way to end a talk by saying sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <clears throat> tonight, I would really like it if um, after this workshop tonight, you uh, eat well. Maybe you take a bath. Um, you really take good care of yourself. Um, some part of us comes to a workshop like this and really wants to wake up. Maybe even once in a while today or last night, you get a little sense that more freedom is possible in your life, or you have a little inkling of something. And then there's this other part of us that really wants to shut that down. And they're actually equal in strength. And to think that they're not is going to cause lots of suffering. So to realize that sometime tonight, or maybe on Monday, or maybe tomorrow night, some part of you that sees that you're waking up a little is going to want to shut it down with french fries or with I, I'm just making things up but some part of you want, doesn't want to be awake it wants to be comfortable in the old addictions and so tonight to really take good care of yourself to have a bath and to eat well and to go to bed early and to be really kind to yourself if you want to read, read if you want to go for a walk, go for a walk and just to be quiet Um, so that tomorrow when we come, we can keep this energy going. But we can also acknowledge that some part of us doesn't want to have anything to do with changing and just wants to be conservative. Do you understand what I mean? Some part of us wants to sabotage this really bad. (laughs) Uh so thank you